This is episode 21 of the What's Up podcast, recorded on 25th of January 2018. I'm Martin. I'm Ali. And I'm William. Today we're going to talk about our Goldilocks of stories. We've got massive stars, medium-sized rocks, and tiny satellites. Nice. So we'll go in inverse size order then and start off with tiny satellites. Very good place to start. This is a story about a small satellite which was recently launched. In fact, it's a CubeSat. Um, so CubeSats are satellites which are, in theory, 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. So pretty cube-like and pretty tiny. So um, about the size of a haggis then? About the size of a haggis. Or a large turnip. Which is an appropriate thing to compare it to on this day of all days. Uh, St. Andrew's Day, when Haggis Neats and Tatties are waiting for... I've got my barrage, got yeah. ready to go. Sorry, carry on about CubeSats. Yeah, I'm, I'm meant to be talking yeah. quickly. Um, they are quite cute, CubeSats. I mean, nobody ever talks about this in terms of, you know, astronomical <laughs> stuff. It's all very serious, but they're kind of cute, little dinky little things. They, these are dinky little things, and the idea is that they are great test beds for new bits of technology. Um, because they're very cheap, you can... You, look, you take them up to the space station at the moment, but the idea is you take them to the space station and you kind of fire them out, ping, 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 mm-hmm. and you can send out lots, and it costs you, compared to other satellites, not very much. Um, this one is interesting because they're trying to test some astronomical ideas. One of the, the things which is intriguing about CubeSats is that they kind of like great technology, but there's some degree they're sort of, they have, they're looking for a, an application a little yeah. bit. It's a bit like um, when lasers were first invented, they were solutions looking for a problem. Yeah. And to a large degree, CubeSats sitting currently into the same field, whereby they're a great idea, but they're actually, how do you use them is the big question. Yeah, and we've been trying to see whether you can do it in, in astronomy. I've, I've been on a couple of proposals actually to try and like get some money to explore astronomical applications. And one of the big problems with these things is that often um, you can't point it precisely enough. If you're trying to look at a, a star in the sky and you're a satellite moving relatively quickly as you orbit the Earth, um, to keep that star lined up in the right place is damn, damn difficult. Um, and it's fine if you've got a big satellite and you got thrusters and stuff like that you can control it um these things are diddy um and so it's kind of more tricky this um mission which is called which is called asteria um is um entirely to test that to try and keep the thing pointed lined up uh control the sort of temperature of it as well and it's just kind of quite interesting because there's a bit of a kind of um if it works and it's successful and it's like great you've solved those problems right now what else can we do um to actually do some astronomy with these mini satellites um so this was a a NASA mission with uh, MIT, I think. Um, but hopefully they do some of the donkey work. We can nick it and uh, stick it in some of our cube stuff. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it ties into an interesting point because a lot of the work on this uh, project, I believe, was done by junior engineers. Yeah. Um, and that actually ties up with what we're doing here on site at the moment. We've got a couple of projects on the go with uh, ourselves, STFC, and also with um, another part of the organization down in Oxfordshire. Uh, RAL space and what they're doing is they're using junior engineers here to develop a couple of different CubeSat systems primarily aimed at earth observation um, which is a bit less constrain- uh, less stringent on things like pointing accuracy but again it's using sort of younger engineers to get into this field yeah and there's a, a fiendish little thing we've got in the lab here where it's all like a telescope which folds out um, so the trouble is these things are so small you can't collect much light um, so you want to make a bigger aperture um, and so this thing's got the like little petals I shouldn't say too much. They're trying, say to get, much. they're trying to get a patent. Nobody copy it. Don't copy it. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it, the, the thing is, it's like, fine, you can do that. But if you can't point it in a precise line, you're never going to do astronomy. So, so this is 
this was kind of interesting. It, obviously, it didn't get much press. It was quite a small project, but it's just kind of cool. I thought it's fun for a few reasons. I mean, the 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 industry's taking off, right? I mean, Massively. the UK's oh, actually yeah. got a huge amount of CubeSat stuff happening, yep. and the fact that this is astronomical, it's not just astronomical stuff that we're doing. It's communications and things as well. So. I get to use the word diddy with a lot of this stuff. So this this thing with its pointing, it's going to have diddy reaction wheels. Is that right? That's the idea. Yeah. So little wheels you spin up, and that as you sort of you, the spinning motion of the wheels kind of affects the orientation of the craft due to kind of angular momentum related issues. Kind of like a gyroscope. Like a gyroscope. Um, yes. And, Hubble and, uses these tiny things. ones. Yes. Because um, they all fit. I mean, actually, it should be pointed out this thing is not ten by ten by ten. It's a six U. So that means it's six units. That's the idea. They're kind of a little bit like uh, they're not quite Lego, but you can. Yeah, they're modular. They're modular. That's better than Lego. Um, and so you can you have six of these together. So this is thirty by twenty by ten. So kind of like a cereal box size almost, um, mm -hmm. and only a few kilograms. But you can it's do one kilo per U. Yeah. Okay. So slightly less than six kilos yeah. is what you're limited to. And you can put that in space, and you can start doing some science with it. It's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And it's kind of pushing technology in intriguing ways. And and we're kind of really excited here because we we we've got a our new building, uh, the Higgs building, which um, anybody who lives near Blackford Hill who listens to us, I don't know if anyone does, uh, we should look at those uh, facts on the, on the website, um, to see, you can see, you've seen a new building has been appearing on the hill, um, and this is, we've just got the keys for it about three or four days ago. Very exciting. Um, have you seen inside it yet? I've not been allowed in. No, he has. I've been in. Oh, yeah. we. Oh, I got a serious yeah, no, email no, no, no. that was like, no, not allowed. No. <laughs> he was allowed. Some of us have special privileges. Are you the reason for that email? <laughs> no, no, I was allowed to go in. <laughs> anyway, this building has got uh, facilities to test CubeSats in. Yep. Um, so the idea is that we, as a technology centre, are meant to be working with sort of Scottish companies um, to, uh, to for the, them to come here and test their CubeSats, um, which is, because it's a big area, it's an interesting area. Mm -hmm. So so that's part of the reason why we've been intrigued to talk about this, because it's it's a good example of this area, which people think is going to be huge, but getting an astronomical tinge. Um, I know this is going off topic, but I was at a meeting last week where some lovely chaps have designed uh, micro satellites. So they're uh, uh, five centimeters by five by five. Oh, so they're half a cube. That's weren't hard enough. But they're designed for um, people to use in classrooms. So you get this little dinky satellite which got a little antenna sticking out of it and you can actually tell it to take selfies of the classroom and it downloads the data in, in um, hexadecimal format and you can reassemble it on the computer and it's you know about teaching school kids how to use this technology early. Well, I think in theory you could, but Martin these things, his head. they don't have enough juice to have a... I was going to say... Yeah. But it's, it, as a concept idea, it's fantastic because awesome. you've got a working little thing sitting in the room talking at you which is fantastic just for sort of experimenting with this kind of stuff. I've, I've worked on a couple of CubeSat projects and trying to get a, an experimental payload plus actual like satellite bus instrumentation and satellite bus infrastructure into one of these things is a massive, massive pain <laughs> to do it in something that's a quarter of that volume. Nature. But taking selfies, that's all good. It's all good. It's the future. <laughs> Small, apart from the big telescopes. We want to launch. Mm. They're yeah. the expensive ones though. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's these these are great test beds for technology and, and trying different things. And also, it, you know, it will lead to innovations. And yeah, uh, but also fast turnaround. You can launch one yeah. very quickly. I mean, yeah, you can do it from the ISS, but you can also do it from sort of general rocketry and modified strut launchers um, to put 
CubeSats into orbit. You're assuming Short duration. You, you don't have a modified scud launcher. Have, have you bought an aftermarket one <laughs> <laughs> currently under the camouflage netting in your back garden? <laughs> uh, that's what it is. <laughs> it's a good business, I'm going to say. Uh, okay, we'll move away from that that topic now. Um, into exploding fiery debris from the heavens. <laughs> yes, is a, yes, intriguing. Nice segue, Ali. Uh, so yeah, there was a, a couple of meteor-related stories. Well, things getting near the Earth or hitting the Earth. So the, the one that popped up in the middle of January was the, the sonic boom meteor over Michigan in the States. Um, so it could be seen by hundreds of people and it was very bright and there's lots of great CCTV footage where this it was a very bright blue meteor that came in and it was a little bit chunky. And normally you're talking of the uh, size of a grain of rice or something and that burns up because it's moving so fast. Um, and that's your normal shooting star. But this thing was a little bit chunkier. Uh, came in burnt up was spectacular everybody went ooh, cast a shadow so it was it was that bright when it was going uh mm. but then it, it, it also because it exploded it, it left a sonic boom and the sonic boom was loud enough to register as a magnitude 2 earthquake according to the usgs uh, and they were like well we don't normally report uh, such a low level earthquake but it was interesting that it was coincident with this meteor and then it suddenly got sort of picked up by news outlets and it caused an earthquake but it, it didn't really cause an actual earthquake it was just the vibration from the sonic boom mm. so this is the, the same thing happens if you have a thunder strike near a seismograph it will it will register but it's not an instrument that's designed to detect air burst noises or anything but i just thought it was quite interesting that uh, it did make uh, a detectable event earthquake yeah, well, yeah. Uh, what, what, what level is a level two earthquake? I mean, isn't that like a truck? According to the USGS's own website, you can't really feel it below magnitude three. Yeah. Uh, unless you're sitting incredibly still and you're looking at, a, you know, the Jurassic Park uh, <laughs> thing yeah. of water. Which is presumably how seismographs work. Yeah. 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 Like, you, you need a, a T-Rex to test it, though. That's the trick. <laughs> Small kids sitting cars with glass of water in front of them. Yeah. yeah. And I thought it was interesting because the, the only other large earthquakes in that state, it's not a very earthquakey state, was a 2.4 earthquake was from a mining blast and explosion. So it doesn't take a huge amount to, to make the earth shake. Attack from below and above. Like, <laughs> dangerous place. The poor Michigan. So how big was this, this chunk to, to, to do uh, that, do reckon? That's a fine one. Uh, the NASA have a page where they, if they have any big events coming into the atmosphere, like, for example, the Chelyabinsk one from 2013, Valentine's Day, roundabout, uh, that was a big, really chunky one, so they can calculate the emitted energy um, because they have a sort of network of sensors around the Earth, mainly looking for nuclear blasts, but uh, they uh, can yeah, also pick up these things yeah. from space as well. Uh, this one didn't get added to that website, which means it's probably quite low. So less than 100 tons worth of TNT, probably even less than that, makes it the size of maybe a football or something, maybe less. Uh, so, you know, sizable, and maybe a piece would have ended up uh, falling to the Earth too, but it depends what it's made of, really. Well, strictly speaking, in Martin's original scaling of massive stars, medium satellite, no, medium. This is actually probably smaller than the, or about the same size as the, the satellite we're talking well, about. I've got you covered. Yeah, that was the, a big satellite. The, there's a bigger one. It's a big CubeSat. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bigger one coming that again is in the press uh, recently, mm -hmm. and this is a, the, oh, the Super color. Bowl near-miss asteroid. It's, it's the headlines that I've seen, which is, um, is it dangerous, dangerous asteroid or dangerous meteorite passes uh, by Earth on super, at Super Bowl? I don't know if it's just the date, the date coincidence or whatever, yeah. but this this is potentially a 500 meter, one kilometer across rock. Yeah. Okay. It's that's, not that's, small. That's, that's, that's more than medium size. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's going to swing by on Super Bowl Sunday, which yeah. is February the 4th. Yeah. But it's not dangerous. No. Like, it's a chunky bit of rock, but it's not, How it's close? not dangerous. Get ready to be scared. Ten and a half lunar distances away. Okay. <laughs> 
quite a long way. It's pretty far because I'm not that scared about the moon hitting me, and this is ten times further away. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. The, I mean, the moon's pretty far away on its own. So if it's coming within a lunar distance away, then you might start to go. Oh, um, but this thing's it's quite far, but it is a big rock, so it's it's notable. Yeah. We'll be able to point things at it and get a good look. Um, but on the same day. Same Super Bowl Sunday, there's a rock coming in at half that distance, and it's only 10 meters across. But, it, you know, it just goes to show there's l- almost every day there is something passing within about 20 lunar distances. And the NASA NEO webpage, if you want to go there, has a, a list of all of these things. But what's even more interesting is I clicked on the rock, the, the big one, just to see what they knew about it. And they've, they've recalculated its orbit. It's very precise because it's quite big. Its parameters are well known. You can extrapolate all the way back to the last time this rock came near the Earth, 1904, it got closer than it's going to get on Super Bowl Sunday. And it would have been February the 4th, 1904. No. Or February the 6th. I can't remember. But it's Super Bowl Saturday. If it had been one day, <laughs> it would have been Super Bowl something like negative 62 because the Super Bowl didn't even start until like 1967. But just imagine, right, that that rock was closer than it is going to be on this Super Bowl but nae bugger on earth knew about it. Just whizzing past, doing its own thing. Uh, it's had close passes to Venus as well, so it's, it's in that sort of plane. Uh, and maybe at some point in the far distant future we'll hit one or bits of us. Um, but it's, it's not a near threat at all. But it's just very interesting that you can sort of go and find these things out and see when it's next going to be near. I didn't go forward in time to see where it was going to end up. But well, it's a good example, isn't it? That, that the bigger rocks like that now, anything which is you know, up to, sort of, say, a kilometre size. We probably have found, probably got it well tracked. And we, not only do we know, kind of, we can say, oh, it's over there on the sky, but we can also kind of say, right, it, it, where is it going to be? Where's it been? Where's it going to be? Um, mm. And that's kind of, well, quite reassuring, isn't it? To some yeah. degree. Yeah. Do, you, do you want my prediction for the next, you know, five, ten years or so? I think it's something, we're getting very good well, at spotting well, asteroids are Super Bowl winners. Uh, not going to gamble that I could even tell you a Super Bowl team. I think Chicago Bears, that's the team I should be supporting. So my uncle, if you're listening, I still do support. Uh, Martin no shaking his head. <laughs> I'll make baseball now. Well, my prediction was going to be, I think we're getting quite good at spotting these things. And at some point, we're switching on new telescopes all the time. Half of them are designed to actually look for these things. So more and more getting added to the list. At some point, relatively soon, I think we're going to find one that we know is going to hit the Earth but I don't think it's going to be particularly dangerous. I think it'll be a bit of a tiddler, maybe 10 or 20 metres across, so sort of Chelyabinsk size. And it might not be for 100 years, but I think somebody will be able to say soon that we know of something that's definitely going to hit us. And that'll be fun because it might be the first time ever you could in advance plan for going out and watching one of these things come through the atmosphere. Yeah, that, that, that's that my be, prediction. No, I think that's probably right. Actually. I think there's going to be, well, particularly the LSST, which I think we mentioned mm-hmm. before, but mentioned. that's going to come online in the next, well, the next 10 years, definitely. Um, and it's going to find hundreds of the statistics for that are painfully huge. It's a million really... events a night or oh, something. It's insane. I mean, it's actually going to be finding the kind of needle in the haystack in terms of the one we're just going to hit us. But mm-hmm. if we, you're right, that when we do and we say, right, that chunk of rock is coming towards the earth, even if it's small, it's still going to be quite a psychological because you don't know where it's going to hit. Like, because we might be able to say it's going to hit the earth, but we won't know because of the way the atmosphere will behave and the time, that level of precision, you won't be able to say it's going to hit in the middle of the sea, which it probably will because mm-hmm. we're mainly sea, but it could hit in the middle of Paris. Could land in your back garden. <laughs> could. 
but just to see what that, the, no. the what the press do with it, you know, well, it, yeah. w- would it potentially go a little bit crazy and people will be like, ah, I don't want to be on that side of the planet from this. Particular. I think we would get a bit excited. Um, mm. So it'd be interesting. But again, I think the threat to human life is going to be very minimal. Zero. Um, yeah. I don't think we've ever had a rock that's ticked all the, the red flag boxes. There's a couple that have come close and then they've looked at the orbit a little bit more closely. And then, you know, more than a hundred years or so in the future, there's, there's no sign that anything's going to come close enough to us to make us nervous. Nothing mm, chunky. It'll be an intriguing psychological moment. You're right. Mm. When, when we, we start being able to predict things hitting us. I would yeah. be a meteor yeah. tourist if somebody could say there's a Chelyabinsk thing happening. <laughs> and I, would make, I would make sure not to sit in a car in case the windows smashed from the sonic boom. <laughs> uh, I mean, Chelyabinsk was an interesting one because people got injured not because of the rock itself, just because of the energy that it dumped and that shockwave that broke glass and um, gave people lots of cuts. So, yeah, you know, it's worth knowing about these things. Mm-hmm. I would totally be with your hard hat and safety goggles on? Uh, probably not, no. I'd get, be getting shouted at by a health and safety person. I'd be what are you doing? Look at the lights. <laughs> okay, so keeping up with the uh, increasing in size order, the last thing we wanted to talk about was massive stars. So I think I'll take this one because I'm actually involved in this. For Yay. once, very, very loosely, it has to be yeah. said. Um, however, unfortunately, apparently I'm not important enough. We, so, we decided to get a proper, genuine expert yeah. to talk about this, um, despite William's involvement in the paper, which I'm sure is very important, and you know lots about it. Absolutely critical, yeah, possibly. Where were you in the pecking order? It was like 15th, or was you? I was possibly the last author on the paper. <laughs> I reduced the data many years ago as my part of my PhD. I sat and churned through the data, which has been slowly analysed by people considerably brighter and smarter than me, and I found something <laughs> interesting in it, which is good. And one of those considerably brighter people uh, is Chris Evans, who's one of our colleagues here at the ATC. And I got the chance to sit down with him over a cup of coffee. I actually had to bring him a cup of coffee to give him to do this. Uh, sit down with him over a cup of coffee and just have a chat about the, the paper and about the headline that followed it as well. So I'm joined today by Dr. Chris Evans from the UK Astronomy Technology Centre here in Edinburgh. Thank you for speaking with me today, Chris. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your, your role at the UK ATC? Certainly. So I'm the head of the science group here at the UKTC and I'm one of our astronomers and I work with the um, different instruments that we build here for ground-based and space-based astronomy. And so our role mixes um, the, the project work where we're developing the new instruments for the observatories, but also with some of our own research. And what got you into astronomy in the first place? Um, so this is kind of the tick list of all the usual things that I think people come up with. Um, I remember I was at high school and I was interested in science. I'd started reading books about astronomy a little bit. And then it was the sort of predictable almost. It was Patrick Moore on a sky at night saying, what can you see in the night sky this winter with your binoculars? And you start realizing you can start seeing all the constellations. You can start seeing planets. Um, and you get out there, you start looking at the moons around Jupiter. And that was about the same time as you get to that sort of stage in, in physics A-level. Um, and then I realized you could do a degree in this stuff. Um, so I signed up for that at university and then didn't look back from there. Um, and through your, your career that you've had so far, and still the beginnings of your career to a large degree, um, what would you say is your proudest um, achievement within that career? Um, so, uh, so one aspect is, is the project that um, we're going to be talking about today a little bit. Um, so I'm uh, the, the lead scientist or the lead astronomer on a big project called the VLT Flames Tarantula Survey. This is a project um, where... Ten years ago, we wrote an observing proposal to use the Very Large Telescope in northern Chile um, to observe a sample of very massive stars in the Tarantula Nebula, which is a big star cluster in the Large Magellanic Cloud. 
um, a small galaxy just outside the Milky Way. And this was one of these projects. We started it off with a group of us who'd already been working together, and it's kind of just grown and grown and kept going. And so here, 10 years later, we've now got over 30 papers out of that survey. Um, a lot of science results, but for me, on the personal side, we've worked with over 70 different people spanning over a dozen countries. So it's that collaborative international aspect. Um, there's been over a dozen PhDs, or the data from the survey has gone into um, over a dozen people's um, PhD theses. So it's that kind of you know, working together internationally to achieve the, the scientific objectives we started out with. And I'd never thought it would grow to where we are now. It was um, you know, something I thought would be a five-year project, and I wouldn't be talking to you about it a decade later. So sort of seeing this grow has been quite something. Must be quite a challenge corralling that many people from that many nationalities together. Yeah, it has its moments. Um, so, yeah, so one of my collaborators used to kind of declare, used to see kind of the emails flying around and say, right, it's time to send you in with your, your blue UN helmet again, isn't it? Of a bit of diplomacy. Um, but I think compared to um, this, this project arose from a previous project we'd been working on. Um, so the kind of core team, we already have been working together for a number of years. Um, we we all like working together. We've had, you know we've been friends and working together for a number of years, a number of years. Sorry. Um, so I think compared to some projects where it's a bit sort of contrived in how people are put together because you've got your own objectives, this was a sort of very natural thing. So um, so mostly it's been pretty smooth. Um, I mean the reason I want to speak to you today was actually about a specific paper that's come out, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I wanted to speak to you about it particularly was because there were some really good headlines coming out of it as well, sort of in the press release. My personal favourite had to be from the, the Register, the online journal, uh, which was Nebula spotted with more supersized bodies than a gym on January 2nd. <laughs> Can you tell us it's... a story behind that? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Um, so this paper pulls together some results um, from the survey that um, we've been looking at over the last few years. And so... Before I go into the, de the details of the paper, let me tell you a bit more about the survey. Um, so what we did in this, this project, the Tarantula Survey, um, we used the Very Large Telescope in Chile to observe a thousand stars in the Tarantula Nebula. And we observed them over the course of 18 months, so multiple times. And what we did was get visible spectroscopy of each of those stars multiple times. So we could then, um, by doing the, the repeat observations, we could see if there were shifts in their velocities to detect evidence of binary companions to learn about the binarity of these stars. Is there where two stars um, are orbiting each other mm -hmm. with binary, yeah. Yes, rather than looking for planets or anything like that. So all of these stars are very massive stars. So kind of the lowest mass stars in our sample are a few solar masses, but most of them are very high mass, so tens of solar masses. So um, compared to our sun, they, you know, they, they burn through their, their hydrogen in a in a few million years and then explode a supernovae rather than sitting there for billions of years. So these are kind of the exciting dynamic stars um, and we've got this big sample of them and the reason for going to the Tarantula Nebula is it's, it's one of the largest stellar nurseries anywhere in the local universe. So if you want to understand a large sample of these objects then this is the ideal place to go. It's kind of on our doorstep. Um, it's in a part of the sky where by looking up at the LMC, you're not looking through the plane of our own galaxy. So the line of sight reddening's a lot lower. Um, we know its distance pretty well. So we've got this exquisite data set on all of these massive stars. And what we've been doing in a series of papers is going through the analysis of these spectra, finding out their physical parameters. So their temperatures, their luminosities. From there, you can start estimating their masses, um, trying to understand their ages, their chemical abundances all with a view to um, improving our understanding of the, the physics and evolution of these things. 
coupled with these multiple observations so we can learn about their binary, their binary properties or whether they have companions. Um, so the latest paper basically kind of brings together the results from a series of papers where we've been observing these, sorry, we've been uh, analyzing these groups of these objects from the survey and we can pull that all together to look at their masses, look at the properties across the whole sample for the first time. And that's when we can then plot their masses and we see that there's a lot more, or there are more massive stars than we thought at the high mass end compared to previous results. Okay, so is this, is this the culmination of the survey then in this paper? Pretty much. This was, this was sort of one of these things where you always had in mind to look at this aspect, but um, when, you look at this, when you look at this mass distribution, so historically, um, so this, there was a first paper on this in the 50s by Owen Saulpeter, um, where he looked at the, the relationship between mass and the number of stars in the solar neighborhood, and it was fit by a, a power law equation. And as people have gone and looked in different areas or they've gone to larger distances, that law from, from Saulpeter's paper, so the Saulpeter law, seemed to be pretty universal. Wherever you look, stars are born um, roughly with the same um, the same ratio of masses. So, uh, so these, these massive stars are very rare. So typically, for a, um, if you had a sort of a thousand solar-like stars or stars like our sun, you maybe only have one of these very massive stars. Um, and then, of course, you've got even more if you go down to sort of the M dwarfs, the, the, low, the low mass stars, more like sort of one to a million. And there's this kind of universal law that's telling us something about the star formation process. If you've got a big cloud of gas, how is it fragmenting down? How do you get cores of gas that then form the centers of these stars? Um, so there's, there's some kind of universal law, seemingly, that, that kind of um, defines all of this. But then if you start looking in a couple of odd places, um, then maybe we're seeing evidence for, um, for a difference in this law. Excellent. Well, thank you for answering the, the serious set of questions. Uh, now, Ali has also got us a list of questions which were slightly less um, technical in nature. I'll quickly fire through a few of those. Uh, what's your favourite sci-fi film or TV series? Um, that's a good one. Um, so I suppose probably Galactica, when it came back around, was that sticks in mind immediately, just because that was, I think, very well done compared to the fabulously kitsch 70s version. <laughs> uh, next question is, to SETI or not to SETI? Um, not fussed either way. <laughs> <laughs> Diplomatic answer. Um, can you tell us anything about the upcoming Marvel film? Sorry, that was for a different Chris Evans, my mistake. Um, if an astronomical genie granted you a wish for a specific piece of hardware, what would it be? Um, it would be uh, a new UV mission uh, in space. Um, so a new... so. A new UV spectrograph. Um, so HST has been with us now over 25 years, um, and it's getting a bit venerable. There's still objects where we can do all the visible spectroscopy from the ground, um, but we'd like the UV spectra to really understand. Yeah, so much of their energy is pumped out at these wavelengths. We need high-quality UV spectroscopy to go with all the stuff we've been doing from the ground. And for that, we need to go to space, and there's no current plans for an instrument like that. So this is something we're trying to get moving within Europe to work with the Americans on in the future. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me today and thank you for answering all my questions. Thank you. Can I just say that I quite enjoy you in full-on Parkinson mode there? The kind of, is, it, is Parky the right 
uh, person to talk about, Paxman. Maybe it was more of a Paxman. No, it was quite. It was more park. It was quite gentle. Parky, quite yeah. chatty. I like yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try and do a more harsh Paxman style grilling next time. Is yeah, that what we're yeah. saying? Yeah, you have to ask them the same question nineteen times. And <laughs> I don't like your answer. We were talking about that. Why are you an astronomer? Because because I did Patrick Moore and awesome things in it. But then, but why? Why? Why are you making money, making banks somewhere in insurance or something? Why? Um. So, Chris, if you're listening, thank you very much for taking the time to do that. Maybe we should come up with slightly stupider questions for next time. Yeah, we get although we approve of the Battlestar. Battlestar Galactica. Oh, the man has class, clearly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, is, that is the correct answer, if anyone's wondering. Yeah. There was something to do with science in there as well, but yeah, that's, that's obviously <laughs> the take-home message. Okay, well, I think that brings us nicely to the end of today's podcast. So thank you very much for listening and making us part of your week. Bye. Thanks, all. Bye.